If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2 this morning. And then be prepared. We're actually going to take a reading this morning out of Acts chapter 2. And then I'm going to take a reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. Um, as we look at the topic of the Lord's Supper this morning, now looking back at the... Um, the nature of the church, and beginning a study on that and the activities of the church, I probably would have went a little different route than what I am now, but uh, the Lord knows exactly what we needed when we needed it. Probably would have expounded this passage of Scripture somewhere near the beginning um, and went in order, but either way, um, it's God's Word, and, and we trust Him to take it um, into the depths of our hearts. Um, but what I want to do is just read the portion out of Acts chapter number 2 this morning, which uh, delineates for us what it appears to be the activity, the primary activity of the uh, local New Testament church. And we'll begin there, and then we'll go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 uh, for some further uh, implications as to uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, but seeing that we were going to partake of the Lord's Supper today, I thought it necessary to preach on this particular activity and to prepare us for it. Um, to be honest with you, I think in the life of this church, I've never preached a sermon completely on the Lord's table. And I look back and I regret that. Um, as many times as we've taken it. Um, and it's not that there's not been instruction with it. And there's all, I, think, I believe there's always been instruction with it and reverence for it. Um, but I think that often, um, if it's something that we're going to regularly partake in and it's going to be a part of our worship and it's necessary to grow in Christ, then there needs to be some proper um, instruction on it. And it could be that I've not really weighed it in my own mind and thinking as a necessary or essential part of the worship of God. And for that, I'm, I'm sorry. And for that, I, I repent. Um, after studying through the Lord's table and, uh, and seeing the commitment that the New Testament local church had to it, God's instruction on it, um, it has become a much weightier matter in my own mind and heart um, that it is a necessary portion of um, the worship of God in the local New Testament church. And it is something that we need to regularly do. And one of the grievances um, over the past year is that that is something that we have somewhat, my, I have somewhat laid aside um, in this whole pandemic. I remember early on uh, seeing pastors online, social media, hearing of them just up in arms about not being able to take the Lord's table. There's many things that I was up in arms about not being able to do, but for some reason that was not one of those, and for that, um, I confess, um, was, a, was a falling short on, on my part um, in the life of this church and over the past year, letting it um, be laid aside. Um, but God has, I believe, instructed me, and I hope instructs you as well, uh, concerning the, necessi the necessity and the essential nature of the Lord's table as a part of the worship of God. Uh, not only as part of His worship, but, but, for, but for our good. It's something that is instituted for us, um, for Him, but also for us. And to neglect it is uh, to neglect something God has commanded that He demands, um, but also it's something that, um, uh, we, that, that if neglected, um, leads to uh, spiritual poverty, I believe, or at least some lacking in our life. Um, so let us pursue this morning um, the Lord's table not only in activity, but in, in preaching. So if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. And 
And I'm going to read all three portions of Scripture. They'll be short. But we'll begin our reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 40. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and, the day, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And the emphasis in that portion of Scripture, again, is going to be verse 42. They continued steadfastly or devoted in the apostles' doctrine and in, the, um, and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread particularly, and in prayers. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, uh, you read these words in verse number 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is not the is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want to have fellowship, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And then in uh, chapter 11 and verse number 23, he picks up instruction on the Lord's table. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Let's pray. Father, once again we approach You, the unapproachable. Father, and You know us. You know our hearts this morning. You know our minds. You know that we, um, I pray, don't make any great claims about ourselves. We know that apart from your Son and your Son alone, we would have no part with you. We would not approach you this morning. We could not. We could not stand in your presence. But at the same time, with some sense of confidence, Lord, I pray that we come to you boldly. Boldly to the throne room of grace, Father, not on our own merit, but upon what the, very, the, the, the perfect work of Christ. Father, our great intercessor, our great redeemer, our great mediator, as we were reminded this morning, Father, the one, the high priest, who stands in our way and becomes um, our own sacrifice. He does not bring only a sacrifice to you, but he brings himself as the very sacrifice for us. Father, And we understand what that means. We understand the Old Testament pictures, that covenant that you made, and it was signed with blood. 
Um, it means that the very wrath of God was poured out on, on behalf of sinners like us, that there was a necessity that blood would be shed for the remission of sins, Father. And, and we even know that even in these texts, Father, that um, this is the blood and the cup, Father, that, that represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ um, that was broken for you, he says, for the church at Corinth, but not only for that, for us. Father, for us. So, Lord, may we come to you this morning, Father, in that way. May we come remembering what had to happen for us to even approach you. Father, may we use this time to exalt your, your, your Son. Father, may we not walk away without Jesus Christ being um, hung high today as our banner. Father, would you use the preaching of your word um, to accomplish your will this morning. Father, I have many hopes for the sermon. I have many hopes for this time, but I hope it blesses your people. I hope it encourages them, Father. I hope it edifies. I hope it changes their minds possibly on some things. I hope that it rebukes us, Father, for um, areas that we may lack and have apathy, Father. I hope it exalts your son, but um, even more than that, I, I just pray, Father, that it, that it accomplishes your will and that you would do with it, Father, whatever you desire to do with it in our hearts. God, we... Um, I pray, prepare our hearts for this moment um, to give you our worship, Father, even my own self. As the Word of God is read and as the Word of God is preached, Father, may you even take it even to greater depths than you already have. Father, my soul is deep and there's some dark areas and there's some areas that need work, Father. Would you, I pray, work on those this morning. Would you even bring the light to things that I don't know are there um, so that your Son may be glorified, Christ may be exalted, Father, and I would not... Um, I, I would, um, uh, the, the fear of man would wane in my heart and the fear of God would just reign uh, full and free. That I have a greater reverence and a respect for you and what you command this morning, Father, as a result of our gathering together. God, would you make us a, a holier people and a more joyful people. God, would you give us reverence, but also, Father, blessed and happy hearts in Christ this morning as, uh, as we meet together. Father, help us to be faithful this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Again, we're going to tackle this morning the topic of the subject of the Lord's table. We come to Acts chapter number 2 because we want to lay the foundation and the framework, I believe, as we already have in days past, um, to lay the, um, uh, the commitment of the local church to certain things. When you come to the book of Acts, you see the activity of the local assembly. And you see in the very birth of the New Testament church, as the Spirit of God comes down upon them, and that gift, that gracious gift is given to them, you see them engaged in a lot of things, but you see them engaged really in a few fundamental things. And we see that after um, Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved and many are coming to Christ um, as a result of the Spirit of God coming down and the gospel being preached. Um, we see the life of the New Testament church there, particularly in verses 40 through uh, 47. We see what God is accomplishing through them and we see the fundamental activities that God and um, that they've given themselves over to um, in the New Testament church. And verse 42 says that there were some things that they devoted themselves to continued steadfastly. And we looked at that in, in relationship to prayer some time ago, um, several weeks now. And I hope you remember exactly what that term devoted meant. 
It means about a hundred different things. There's, a, there's about a, a, a multifaceted way to tackle um, that word. It means consistent and it means persistent. It means steadfast. It means um, giving yourselves continually over to. It's something that you are um, intentional and devoted to. That The church had a few things that they were really um, engaged in. You can give me a lot of things, but the church would have said, these are the things that are necessary. These are the things that we are devoted to. These are the things when we gather together as a local assembly, um, that, 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 that there, there's some things we have a take it and leave it attitude to. These are not those things. Um, there are things that when we gather together that are fundamental, essential, and necessary um, to the worship of God and to the benefit um, of the local assembly. And I would say that these are four of those things. The apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Um, first and foremost... Um, there was a commitment of the local church to the Lord's Supper, is what I'm going to argue. If there was a commitment to the local church, to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship. I believe it's a, a, a term there that doesn't just mean fellowshipping together. It's a noun. I believe it's to the fellowship of the church. Um, to the breaking of bread, which I'm going to argue is the Lord's table or communion or the Eucharist, whatever synonym you want to use for it, as well as to the prayers or to um, corporate prayer. That the Lord's table has always been something that is instrumental and essential to God's people throughout the ages. Now, if you were to study the Reformation, the 15 and 1600s, um, during the Reformation, many of the pastors and teachers during that time, church leaders, as they were coming out of the Church of Rome, had a desire to um, help the people of God define what a true church was because there were so many false churches in that day, one of those being the Church of Rome. So as they're coming out, um, they have a desire to um, identify and define what a local assembly is and what a true church is. Um, and they had a few criteria to what they were. And again, this isn't something that's dogmatic today. We may argue somewhat differently or even add some definition and uh, nuances to this. But they had three primary um, fundamental criteria. That a true church was a church that had the right preaching of the Word or right preaching of the Gospel. They had the Apostles' Doctrine. Um, they had a good understanding, not, not just a good understanding, but, but a right understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Um, number two, they would argue that um, they had a right use of the sacraments. Um, when I use the term, term sacrament, um, there may be some people that um, are some, have an aversion to that, uh, that terminology because it's a terminology particularly used by Rome, but it was also a terminology that the reformers were not afraid of. And up until about the last century, um, the church throughout the ages hasn't, hasn't either. And we would refer to those as the ordinances, um, particularly baptism and the Lord's um, Supper. There was a necessity to get those right. I mean, not only that, but there was a necessity, number three would be the right use of church discipline. That there was a necessity that the church would come together, and as it would come together, it wouldn't allow sin to run rampant within the church, but that it would handle it appropriately. And all three of those together, they would argue, and I would argue, um, was really an effort to... Uh, protect the gospel in all areas of life and to protect the church in what we would refer to as saved church membership. That a false preaching of the gospel, um, falls privy or um, captive to um, false conversion. That when you don't get the gospel right, what you do is you fill your church with con uh, false converts. And you have the, um, the people within the, co within the congregation with a false sense of security that they're saved by the grace of God when truly they're not. Um, and that's why Paul in Galatians refers to 
um, a false gospel as, or someone who preaches a false gospel as someone who, who is accursed and um, is damned. Because it leads men astray. It, um, it condemns men. It's like the Pharisees who, pro- who preached a false, uh, a false gospel and a very legalistic gospel to where it was um, uh, one of the... Uh, Jesus condemns them saying that not only are you... And this is a paraphrase, going to hell, but you make um, those who are under you, uh, you uh, children of hell as well. Um, and what they were doing was leading men and women and children astray by preaching a false gospel and a false doctrine. Well, what about the, the use of the ordinances or the sacraments? And what about church discipline? Um, it was an attack on the gospel as well. Because what happens is when you get baptism wrong... Um, you give people a false sense of assurance. And whenever somebody comes up and they pray a prayer and they walk through a, you know, 10 steps to being a Christian and they have a profession of faith but they have no fruit um, in, in meat or, or right with repentance or that would even indicate any repentance at all. They have no conviction of sin and, and righteousness and judgment and this and that. And they have no uh, real um, ideal of following after the Lord Jesus, taking up their cross and following Him, abandoning self, denying self and, and clinging to Christ. What happens is is you end up baptizing a whole host of people who simply um, profess um, a, a, an external sense of a, uh, an attachment to the church and to Christ, and you end up with a whole church full of false converts. Um, whenever you don't rightly administer baptism, um, then you end up with false conversions and attack on the gospel. The same with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper must be protected, and that's why they would fence the table and they would... And they would, they would, they would uh, approach it with somewhat of a reverence that it cannot be administered to false converts or to unbelievers because um, to do so and to administer it to anyone and to everyone regardless of any distinction was to um, encourage a false sense of security and a false sense of salvation and conversion in those people. And you end up with a whole host of people within the congregation um, who believe they're saved. Why? Because they were baptized and they take the Lord's Supper. Uh, not having any true really understanding. And then church discipline. Um, when you don't administer church discipline appropriately within a congregation, what happens is that sin runs rampant within the congregation and people have a false sense of security that they are attached to Christ because they attended a service, they took baptism, they took the Lord's Supper, all while um, there's sin running rampant within their heart and their life. And you end up with a church in, in Revelation chapter 3 um, who really, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, um, who really has a name that it's alive but it's dead. Um, it's lukewarm. Um, it doesn't handle sin appropriately. Why? Because it doesn't have the gospel right. Um, so all these things are really protecting the gospel um, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just the, the Reformation um, that, that had a, a desire to do those things. I believe the New Testament church did as well. And also not only the New Testament church, but those who followed in the apostles' teaching post-apostolic um, or after the apostles, the early New Testament church, um, you know, one question that, that, that could be asked, and probably should be asked, is you know, not, only, not, not only Reformation, we're not clinging to 500 years of, of, of church practice, but, but as a church throughout the ages, through 2,000 years, how did they worship? What were the things that they cling to? What were the things that they guarded? You know, we don't want to get all hung up on the Reformation, although the, it was a great thing and, and God did it in a mighty work. And we look to those men and read those men and, uh, and, and understand how they worshipped and how they practiced and how they preached and, and how benefit it is to the church. But don't forget the other 1,500 years of Christ's activity in, in the midst of His bride um, because they would carry much of the same sentiment all throughout the beginnings of the church. There was a man by the name of Justin Martyr 
Um, who lived from probably 100 A.D., around the time that the Apostle John uh, possibly passed on into eternity, until about 165 A.D. when he was martyred um, by, by the uh, magistrates in Rome, if I'm not mistaken. He was an essential church leader in the early church. He was raised by pagans and saved by the grace of God um, at the age of 30 after being evangelized by a faithful um, elderly man. Um, he was initially, though, in the very beginning, a student of Plato and the Stoics. So he brought a lot of baggage in, but God gloriously saved him. He began his ministry in Ephesus and later ministered in Rome, um, in which one, at one point he would give his life on Calvary, thus earning the surname um, Justin Martyr, a witness for Christ who gave his life um, as he's beheaded there in Rome. Why was he beheaded? Because he was put on trial for a... a, 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 a for, for preaching the gospel, but also for a document that he had wrote called the um, Apologia or the Apologetics. Um, it was a defense of the faith. And he actually sent it to the emperor in Rome or the emperor during that period of time, um, telling him pretty much how he is to conduct himself, but also um, telling him what they must do as, um, as believers in Christ. Thus, there's much um, great things to glean from what he wrote. And on the practices of the early church, he wrote this. To the emperor. He said, This is pretty much what we do on Sunday. He just wanted to let him know <laughs> and what they could not give up. And he says these words He says, And on the day called Sunday, again, remember this is probably around 150 or so, um, 130 to 150 um, AD. So 30 to 50 years after the apostles are all gone, and about 100 to 130 years after um, the New Testament church was born, Jesus Christ gives up his life on Calvary. He says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities and in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. As long as time permits. Then when the reader is ceased, the overseer verbally instructs, or the pastor, the preacher, the leader, and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. He says, then we all rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the overseer in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. And there's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And they who, all, who are well to do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the overseer who provides for the orphans and widows and those who, through sickness or any other cause, are in want, and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us. And in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead." End quote. He writes here an explanation of what the church was doing in the regular meeting to the magistrates that are over them. And he just pretty much says these are the things that we do and these are the things that we're not going to give up. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and these are the things He requires. And it's pretty simple. On the day they gathered together to read the apostles' teaching and to hold to the apostles' doctrine. How? By reading the very apostles' words, followed by some explanation or exhortation by the overseer of the church. Then there were prayers, and there was bread and wine, and then more prayers. And afterwards, there was an offering taken up, and the offering was distributed at that time during the service um, to the orphans and to the widows. 
and to the providentially needy and within the congregation or any sojourners that may be there that needed some, some funds for travel. Along with singing of hymns and songs, even though it wasn't mentioned there, um, uh, Justin Martyr mentions it elsewhere um, in his writings. This is the full description of what the early church did. This was it. You know, just 50 to 70 years before the, or after the death of the last apostle, about a, you know, a century after the death of Christ, we find the early New Testament church doing exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. The same fundamental activities. You know, it should strike us that the church could go through such an explosion of Christianity and such an explosion of uh, opposition and such an explosion of persecution and they had one basic strategy. Be faithful to the Word. In water, in word, in bread, and in wine. You have a church who leaned upon the power of the Word of God, the preaching of the Gospel, and baptism and communion of the Lord's Supper. Is it possible that these are the simple elements that God has chosen to accomplish His will and His Word through His people? You know? Christians throughout the century have believed that the faithfulness to the biblical model um, is more important to be desired than ingenious ways of worship and practice that diverts its away from the apostolic example and, the, and, and essentially God's commands. You know, isn't it amazing that um, the church flourished, went across the nations? Jesus Christ received the reward of his suffering. Um, from, multi, from, from, from continent after continent, from country after country, after nation after nation, after uh, ethnicity after ethnicity, that churches were born not by ingenious ideas and not by the latest and the greatest insights by, um, by, the, by, the, by the young pastor um, giving himself over to creative ways to bring people within the, 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 within the family or within the, the, the congregation of God's people. They simply gave themselves over to these things. It's, um, it's monumental, you know? That there wasn't a great uh, growth strategy within the local congregation. They simply gave themselves to God's Word, to the right administration of the ordinances, church discipline, and the gathering around God's people and doing what He, he commanded. Of which one of those was the breaking of, of bread. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42. If you were to go to Acts, you don't need to turn there, but Acts chapter 20 and verse number 7 um, refers to this also as the breaking of bread. Um, I'm going to argue that the breaking of bread here is not a common meal. That most of the time when this is used in the New Testament, or at least several times, the context I believe dictates that this is speaking about the Lord's Supper. I believe in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 7, you read that. I also believe in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse 16 and 17, give those exact words at talking about the Lord's table. Um, in verse number 16, he says, the, cupping of, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That the Lord's table was something that probably... As far as we can tell from, the, I think, the New Testament, uh, this is arguably true. And I think from church history, I'm taking their model after the apostolic example that this was something that they gathered together and did every single Sunday. Now, this is something that they gathered together. And while there's not a, an explicit command to do this, um, there is an apostolic, I believe, example in the Scriptures as well as in the early New Testament church, that this was something that they regularly engaged in. That the breaking of bread was a graphic portrayal of the body being broken 
The body of Christ being broken by the Father, the blood being shed as a wrath of God was poured out upon Him, securing salvation for us. For us. That the breaking of bread, I'm going to argue in Acts chapter 2 and other places in Scripture, is speaking that uh, of the Lord's table and communion, that they brought the bread and that they brought the wine that was instituted by the Lord Jesus in Luke 22, in Matthew chapter 26, and in Mark chapter 14, that it was something that they carried on because that was Christ's example. Um, not only that, but Matthew 26 refers to um, the, the, the Lord's table or the Lord's supper as the Eucharist. Um, the original word there used for giving of thanks is literally the Eucharist. I know that it scares some of us, and there's an aversion to it because of the Catholic Church. But literally, all it means is a giving of thanks. That Jesus institutes it, and He thanks God for the bread, and He thanks God for the cup, and it leaves us with our example in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the exact same thing is, is, is the exact same word is used for us, that when we break the bread and we give the cup, that it represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ and the blood that He shed, and that we are to give thanks for it, the Eucharist. Um, so often you'll refer to it, or you'll see it referred to as that, even among um, Protestant Christians. Um, it's also referred to as the Lord's table. First Corinthians eleven twenty refers to it as that. First um, Corinthians ten verse sixteen refers to it as the cup of the blessing that we bless. Is it not participation in the cup of the Lord, or in the uh, bread of the Lord, the table of the Lord? In First Corinthians eleven twenty. And it's very interesting because the term Lord there um, is a unique term that's only used for two different things in the entirety of the New Testament. There's a general word for, for Lord um, that we use all throughout the New Testament and it's replete with it. Um, but this word particularly in 1 Corinthians 10 and also in Revelation chapter number 1 is the only time that this term Lord is attached as a possessive uh, noun for a certain activity. And the other time that it's used, it's used for the Lord's day. But there are two things that belong to the Lord uniquely, it seems, um, in the New Testament, the Lord's day. Now, yeah, there are days like uh, seven days in a week, and they all belong to Him. But there's a specific day that the New Testament writers in the early church and church throughout the last 2,000 years of church history have signified as His day. It's uniquely His. The same with the supper. There's many suppers. There was a feast and a fest at festivals and there was a love feast that would even happen before this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Um, but, but, but there is a, a significant table that belongs to the Lord and it's the Lord's table. Thus it is not to be used and abused in any way um, that we so desire just as the Lord's day um, was not to be either. That They regularly um, observed this thing that uniquely belonged to um, the Lord, the Eucharist, the, the, this, this table of giving of thanks, um, this, um, this, this, this table that belonged to Him, this breaking of bread to commemorate um, the Lord's table. Why a regular observance of the Lord's table, someone may ask. Well, first we would drown that in um, the, the new covenant of His blood, which is in some ways the final realization um, of the old covenant Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is a continuance of the Passover meal. Arguably the most important event in all of um, Old Testament history is when the Old Covenant people of God um, left out of Egypt and, um, and was freed from bondage of slavery that God delivered this, this nation. It was so pivotal in Jewish history that um, their very code of ethics, the Ten Commandments, um, as they receive them, uh, by Moses received them on the mount. He begins and prelude, preludes them um, with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. 
But to procure that exodus, that freeing from bondage and slavery, there were ten plagues that had to be unleashed um, upon the nation of Egypt in judgment against them. The final one being the tenth plague, which was the plague of the death of the firstborn. He was to procure the exodus through the plagues. That was one of God's methods to accomplish that. And as a result of that, on the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, the Hebrews are instructed to sacrifice a lamb, consume its flesh, cover the doorposts and the lentils of their homes, and they were to be faithful. And if they were to be faithful to that, then God would pass over them in judgment and they would live. And that's exactly what happened. Death came to Egypt, but God passed over. Why? Because a lamb was slain and the blood was applied. And this was to be remembered for ages to come. That God commanded them to memorialize it. That the Jewish people were never to forget um, this. So He commanded that there was an institution of a Passover meal that would happen regularly with bread similar that they packed out of Egypt and, uh, and wine that they brought with them. That the service was done with four different cups of wine. And before each cup was passed, someone would explain a portion of what God accomplished um, in the Hebrew history regarding the Passover. In uh, Mark chapter number 14, and verse number 12, you see Mark's account of the Last Supper um, before Jesus would go and give His life on Calvary. You read these words in Mark chapter uh, 14 and verse number 12. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, His disciples said to Him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And He sent out two of His disciples um, and said to them, Go into a city, and a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And he goes on to tell them how to prepare for the Passover. In verse 22, you read these words. And as they were eating, eating what? And Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new and the kingdom of God. And the symbolic point is clear. In Exodus, the escape from bondage and slavery of Egypt, the sacrifice that permitted the escape from death, the Passover celebration was a foreshadowing of the one who would free us from slavery and bondage to sin, who would come and who would, who would make death pass over them. Um, by the innocent blood of a sacrifice, the innocent blood of a lamb, that there would be one who would come, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, and He would procure the salvation of all those who would believe by the blood of His own Son. God Himself would give the perfect Lamb, and the Lamb would come and give Himself. So then Jesus institutes the supper, which would inaugurate that new covenant. And He explains that He is our Passover Lamb, and that we are to do this in remembrance of Him. That it wasn't, any, it wasn't any coincidence that Jesus comes to Jerusalem five days prior to the Passover, the Scriptures tell us. You know what happened on five days before Passover for 1,200 years of Jewish history? They chose the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was to be killed on the 14th day of Nisan. You know what day that Christ was crucified? On the 14th day of Nisan. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record for us that, that Jesus was killed roughly around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. You know what hour the lamb would have been slain? The blood would have been applied? It would have been at 3 p.m. 
that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, procured in time and reality 2,000 years ago, and that the Old Testament Passover was looking for that, and the Lord's table today, His table, looks back and commemorates that. And that it is necessary and essential for the New Testament church to um, engage in that. Why? Because it is, in a sense, it is our communion. It is part of our communion with Christ. I want to argue that, that it is part of our communion with Christ. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse number 16, you read these words. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? I'm going to argue that the Lord's Supper is a memorial to celebrate Christ's death. But I'm also going to argue that it's more than that. There's many views of the Lord's table throughout church history, and there's many views of the Lord's table today. Um, the, the Catholic Church has a view that, that, that once the, the, the bread is broken and the cup is poured and the thanks is given, that it actually becomes um, the, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to argue that. I don't believe that. I believe that that's heretical doctrine. Very dangerous to the church. Luther came a step closer and he believed, and at some point I believe he even actually, um, you can find his quotes, that he would chew on the Lord's body, on Christ's body. That he believed that Christ was present in the bread and in the cup. I'm not going to argue that. I'm going to argue though that Christ is present at the Lord's table. That it is one of the activities that God has given us to commune with Him in some way. That in the table He offers us some benefits that we would not have otherwise if we do not participate in that activity. So to fail to engage in the activity as a church or as an individual for any period of time or for a long period of time is actually to restrict um, the blessing of God to you um, and what God has to offer you in the actual table. That it benefits the soul. And that's the argument here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. That, that there is communion with the Lord. And that what he's arguing against is that he's arguing that they are communing with devils and demons. You read that on, he says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are, are those not um, who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, is anything or, or, or what is offered to idols is anything. Rather, the, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship or communion or participate with the demons. The idea is, is that they're probably they're engaging in some form of pagan meals, of, of, of meat and sacrifices that were offered to idols. And you know what they're thinking and they're saying? They're saying, well, it's just, it's just, it's just meat and it's bread and it's wine. Paul is saying that no, actually when you're engaging in these things, I need you to know that there's something happening to your soul. It's more than just bread. It's more than just wine. It's more than just meat. That there is some interchange going on with the soul. And I don't want you to commune or to fellowship or to partake with uh, devils. It's not good for the soul because it's idolatry. It's a form of worship in some sense. And we don't know all the details of this, but he's urging them not to partake of that because... Um, to, to offer something else worship is idolatry and it's not good for the soul. And, and, and he argues that by arguing that the Lord's table is, is good for the soul. It's communion with Christ, with His blood and with His body. That There is a sense in which um, He is present among us. Not present in the elements in a physical form or a tangible form, but the activity actually engages our souls and offers us benefits that would not otherwise be there. And you see the parallel of that in the Old Covenant in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-5. through 5. Um, You actually see um, the same thing happening in the Old Testament, thus He warns them about it. 
Um, he says, Moreover, brethren, in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized in the Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. All ate some spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as also they lusted. And not to become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Thus in a moment, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, he's going to argue that, that, that they're engaging in idolatry. And in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, he's going to argue the same thing that happened in the Old Testament is the same thing that's now happening in the New Testament, that they're eating and drinking and being, being, married, or being married, and they're, they're lusting and they're engaging in idolatry and they're abusing the Lord's table. And that's why some of them are sick and even dying. Because it's idolatry. It's abuse and misuse of the table. Um, and it's the Lord's table. But it's not, it's not the, His physical presence is not there, just like His physical presence was not there in the Old Testament. Yet somehow, through obedience to Christ, and they communed with Him in such a way that, that, that Paul can say to the first Corinthian church, and he can say to us, that they drank and, and ate of Christ. That they communed with Him in some way. That Christ kept them. That Christ loved them. That they engaged in obedience and humility towards Him. So don't give yourselves over to idolatry. It's not good for the soul. Give yourself over to, to communion with Christ in the bread and in the cup. Um, because that's, that's, uh, it, it's good. It benefits the soul is what he's going to, to argue. How in the world does that happen? One might ask. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3. I want to read to you just a, a verse, a quick verse, and try to give you um, an idea of, of what I mean here whenever I say that it benefits the soul. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I don't have all the time to go into every single little detail of this verse. But what I want to argue is, is that Paul writes to Ephesus and he tells them that they should praise God. Thus, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you should praise God and Christ. Why? Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. There's three reasons that you should praise God this morning. And there's probably a thousand, but in this verse there's three. Why? Because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. I would argue that that word spiritual is almost exclusively used by Paul to refer to the Spirit of God giving some gift. That the gifts that you have are simply given to you by the Spirit of God and that they are heavenly perfect gifts because you are in Christ. That everything that you have that is a blessing and perfect and heavenly is given to you by virtue of Christ's death by the Spirit of God as He continues to reveal Christ to you, that there are more benefits today, that that's how Christianity works. That Christ accomplishes all the benefits that you would ever need for godliness in life, and that the Christian life is that throughout it, um, in your faithfulness to Him and engaging in the means that God has provided, sitting under the preaching of the Word, reading the Word of God, um, engaging in the fellowship, using your gifts, um, protecting the Lord's table, that God, by His Spirit, illuminates your heart and your soul. Um, thus making you more like Him and giving you more and more and more grace. And that's what, how He operates 
even in the Lord's table. That as one receives the Spirit of God, he receives the lifelong blessing of continued illumination of the benefits that are in Christ because he has Christ. How? By the Spirit, how does that happen? The Spirit uses means. And um, uh, Christians throughout the ages have been helpful to us in this. They refer to often as, as certain things as a means of grace. A means of grace. You may have heard me reference that before. You may have heard me speak of that before. Um, and it's not just a, a general phrase that I've used. It actually has specific meaning. That God has ordained certain means to give grace to God's people. That the preaching of God's Word is a means to funnel you grace. That the reading of God's Word is a means that God uses to funnel you grace. That baptism is a means by which, um, which funnels you grace, more grace. That the Lord's table, I'm going to argue, is a means by which God funnels you more grace. That you need grace. You need more grace. I need more grace. We all, we all need more grace. You say, we have all the grace that we need in Christ. Yes, but, but, but in this life we live, and in this life we struggle, and in this life we continue to sin, and in this life our, our minds are finite, and we have not um, come to the knowledge of the, the fullness of all that Christ is, and all that Christ does, and all that Christ desires. We continue to struggle with sin, and with, with sickness, and with sadness, and with struggles in general, with personal holiness. We struggle in sanctification. Thus, we need grace for life. Life, here and now. How do we get that? The Spirit of God gives it to us in Christ. It only comes from the Spirit of God. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 when he speaks of spiritual things or spiritually discerned. It only comes from the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God is the means of giving grace to you, not only in eternity, but here and now. That you and I need grace. It's like air to the body, it's like oxygen. Air is necessary for life. And there are multiple means of delivery. If you work in healthcare, you know, or you've been on the table or in a bed, a hospital bed, you know that there are multiple means of delivering um, uh, oxygen depend, or air depending upon the need. Air generally goes through the mouth of the nose, down the trachea, into your lungs, where it's then processed and distributed to your, your blood and carried all throughout as a necessary part of life. But if the upper portion of the windpipe is closed off to do to, to various means, let's say inflammation, objects, um, barring it, um, we need to make a new delivery system. Right? Or if you're aging and you have a disease that obstructs your breathing um, and you're not getting enough, then, then they can cannulate it. They can put a mask on you. They can initiate the breathing. Or if, if, uh, if they need it, they can put a tube down your throat and actually breathe for you. Those things don't save you, though. Those things are not your salvation. The doctor is not your salvation. The means are not your salvation. But the means are the delivery system to get you the, 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 the means of your salvation, which is the air. The air is what saves you. The air is what is necessary for life. In a similar way, these means don't save you. The preaching of the gospel doesn't save you. The, the, the Lord's table doesn't save you. The Spirit does that work through the means as He pipes and channels and delivers grace to you. And what are those means? The things that I've just mentioned. The preaching of God's Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the, the fellowship of God's people, prayer, um, infuses grace in some sense um, to us. 
Anything that confers God's grace to God's people within the local church is a means by, of grace. And I understand that that may be somewhat controversial to some of you. Um, if you're familiar with the concept at all. Some deny the concept altogether. If we want to disagree, agree to disagree on that, that's fine. Um, such as one says, quite simply, baptism and communion are separate from grace. And they're not a means to it, one writer says. The rituals of the church do not confer grace and do not merit salvation. It would be more proper to say that the ordinances are signs of grace, but they are not a means of grace. I would, tell you, I would disagree with that statement. They are not grace in any way that merits salvation, as I've already argued. In no way do they save a man. But God has determined means by which to reach out into the world and to confer grace. He's chosen men. He's chosen congregations. He's chosen avenues. He's chosen uh, prayer. He's chosen the Lord's Supper. Um, as means to confer grace to worthy receivers who will come to Him by faith and repentance. James Boyce says, These blessings are not just stored up for us in heaven for the future. They're not blessings to be enjoyed once we get to where Christ is. Instead, it is as if heaven is being brought to our souls by the Holy Spirit through the means of grace due to the work of Christ in accordance to the Father electing and His predestinating purposes. That there are means by which God delivers to us that which is necessary and the Spirit makes it alive and, uh, and as we receive it by faith, we are, it benefits our souls. And that's how we commune with Christ. That's how we can walk away today and say faithfully that we communed with Christ as we met with God's people. Was He physically here? Was He physically in the bread? Is He physically in you? No. But He is present in you as the Spirit of God rules and reigns and delivers grace to you through the means that He has designed to deliver those, particularly the preaching of the Word, the ordinances, the fellowship, and prayer and i believe that that's true because of first corinthians 10 verse 16 that the communion here the fellowship the sharing um, is what the term means you may have a, a, a translation that says participation of the blood of christ that there is a vertical relationship in this portion of scripture speaking of a vertical relationship and something happening between god and man um, in the table there is something being communicated by God through His Spirit in the table, in the activity, as it is received by faith. In a similar way as the preaching of the Word of God. You know? We're talking about a supernatural work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes that it's not just a memory. It's more than a memorial. It's a memorial. And it's a memory. And it's a symbol. But it's more than a symbol. That these are the things that when believed... Um, by faith and partaken of, do something good and benefits the soul that could not otherwise be accomplished um, without faith and without the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God uses them as He does the Word of God um, and does soul work in them. That the bread and wine are not the literal body of Christ and nor is He physically present. But that does not mean that the presence, present in the, He's not present in the activity and that they are not a, ma a tangible means of grace. And maybe I could illustrate it like this. How many would doubt that the preaching of God is a means of grace? If not here, I pray somewhere that you have heard the Word of God preached and you've immediately known that God was with you. 
Not the preacher, not the orator, not the rhetorician, um, but you were nourished by Christ. Have you, ever, have you never felt refreshed by a drink after working 12 hours a day in the heat? And have you never felt that way after the Word of God was preached? Because all week you've been laboring and working and you need something to sustain you. So as you sit under the Word of God in your field with a readiness to engage the world once again on Monday because He has rested, uh, as you have rested in Him and He has refreshed your soul. When the Gospel is poured over you, do you not experience the presence of Christ publicly displayed before you as in Galatians 3, 1 and 2? Have you ever experienced rest in Christ as you sat under the preaching of God's Word or even at home simply reading it and you walk away strengthened in your spirit? Is that because you came to it by an intellect? Is that because you were just more academic that day? Is it because your mind was just more keen and you picked up on certain things? Or is it because God used by His Spirit as He dwells in you, that means to show you Christ more fully? Thus you walk away rejoicing and thankful in your heart. Does He not ever through the preaching of the Word of God bind up your wounds? Does He not ever reach down and heal your hurts? Does He not ever equip you for battle? Does He not ever convict you of your sins? Does He not ever arm you in prayer? Does He not ever give you a zeal for Christ? Does He not ever leave you bathed in more grace from God than when you came this morning? On the, does He not meet with you in the preaching of God's Word? Or is it just an intellectual and an academic exercise in which you engage yourself in it and you walk away with more knowledge than you had today? Or, or can we faithfully say that today we met with Christ as His, as His Word was preached? Because the Spirit of God did things that my mind could never do and the Spirit of God did things in my heart that my heart would never reveal. And on the other hand, when you lack the Word, does not your soul starve? When you've not been in church for weeks or for months or your mind's not been engaged, does your inner man not grieve over the sin? Does it not hinder your walk? Do you not find that on those weeks whenever you're not in the Word or you're not in, 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 in the church and you're not around the fellowship, that you're, that, that you're not with Christ? Thus you struggle and thus you fall and thus you, uh, your mind engages and walks down a hundred other realms than walking with Christ. And that when you come back under the preaching of the Word of God, that Christ often meets you there and corrects you and rebukes you and instructs you in righteousness. Because that's what the Word of God does because that's who Christ is. And all I'm arguing is that this is the same as the supper as well. This is true of the supper. That the, there are tangible, actual, touchable, feelable, knowable benefits that one receives when he remembers Christ. And he looks at the bread and he looks at the cup and he sees Christ in a visual way. You know, some of the communi communication experts argue that, that preaching is not, a, uh, is not a sound form of teaching at all. You only walk away with 5 to 10% of what you... Uh, you, um, you get. And that's true, naturally. Of course, it doesn't account for the Spirit of God taking it to the depths of your soul, which will last a lifetime. But maybe God also knew that some people learn visually, intangibly. And um, as they see the bread and as they see the cup and they're reminded the Spirit of God takes that reality to the depths of their soul and reminds them of their own depravity and the faithfulness of Christ and His holiness and His love for a lost and a dying world and, and that the cup was not just for the world in general, but the cup was for you. That as Christ shed His blood and His body was broken, like it was broken for you. 
Does not that do good for your soul? Does that not encourage you? Does that not grow you? Does not the Spirit of God take that reality and cause your heart to give thanks? It's more than just bowing our head in prayer, thanking Him in some academic exercise or some mechanical um, type of process. It's more than that. It's you dwelling upon the the cup and the bread and and the visible signs and symbols of the the memorial of Christ. And at the same time, it accomplishes a mighty work in your heart because you need grace today. And you need His presence today. And you need His power today. Thus, the Lord's table rarely observed in a church or as an individual is a church or an individual that spurns the means that God has given us to receive grace. Thus, you're spurning grace. The Lord's table rarely observed is a church that regularly spurns even um, the gospel in some sense. That there is a communion with Christ that happens in the life of the church. And I'm not just arguing this for the Lord's table. I'm arguing it for all of us, for everything that we do. These four things and much more. Do you see the essential nature of the church yet? That yes, there is a a technicality. Yes, it is true that there are men today that are outside and in hard areas and they don't have Christ, but that's not the general operation of God. That God um, saves people. God establishes churches. God puts leadership over them. God desires the right preaching of the Word and the right use of the ordinances and the right use of church discipline. Why? Because His his presence is is, is supposed to be among us. Have you ever read Matthew chapter 18 in the the context of church discipline? You know what he says? He says, where two or three there are together, they ask anything in my name, I am there in the midst. That it's in the the ordinances, if you like that term better. It's it's in the preaching of His Word. uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It's in the the, the, the sacraments, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 16 and 17. And it's in the church discipline in Matthew chapter 18 that, that, that Christ says, when these things are done, I am there. Therefore, grace is conferred. You are encouraged. You are rebuked. You are convicted. You are grown in Christ. The Spirit of God comes and we can faithfully say that Christ was with us in these things. Do you see yet the essential nature of Christ's bride gathering together? Do you see why in the New Testament they gave themselves over to these things? In the New Testament church, just the martyr and, and, and congregations alike gave themselves over to these things. The reformers gave themselves over to these things. The Christians throughout the ages and Christians today need to give themselves over to these things. Why? Because we need Christ. And we need as much of Christ as we can possibly get funneled to us. Because the world is, is chaotic and it's, and, it's, and it's in turmoil and it's going down and, and you and I can quickly get on social media or on CNN or Fox News or your favorite news outlet or whatever it is and we can get discouraged and we can lose hope. And we need a regular remembering of Christ week in and week out in whatever form and every form that we can that God has ordained to funnel that grace and that knowledge to us. Thus He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 24, do this in remembrance of Me. That you see 
um, the commitment of the New Testament church and church history and churches throughout church history and that you see uh, given over to the Lord's table. You see the, the, the communion that comes with Christ through His Spirit um, as, as this is a means to bring Christ to us in, in a spiritual way, just like in the Old Testament, as they drank from the Lord and they consumed Him. It became part of them. No man could come and take that away. It symbolized union with Christ and the fact that no man, uh, whether you know, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That the bread and the wine, it becomes part of us and it cannot be um, taken away from us. That's why in John chapter 6 and, and throughout the Gospels, Jesus gives them that illustration that you need to eat of Me. You need to drink of Me. And anybody that doesn't, doesn't have a part with me. That you need me. And that you need to come to me by faith. And that's like consuming. That's like taking me. That's like becoming one with me. Thus you do that through faith. Thus the table is only active grace and a means of grace when you partake it by, by faith. And you hold it in that high regard. Because some of you are sitting there and being like, I've taken communion a number of times since I've been here. And it's not really done anything for me. Because there's no inherent value in the bread or the cup. It's spiritual. And nothing comes to you from Christ but by His Spirit through faith. It's the same with preaching. It's the same with sermons. It's the same with prayer. You've knelt down and you've engaged and you've sat under and you've walked away with nothing wondering what in the world have I done today? Was it worth going at all? But that's not because there is an inherent lack in the means or an inherent lack in grace. It's because oftentimes we come and we don't approach it with faith. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Through faith and repentance, we receive the grace that God has for us. Thus, I beg you today that when you remember, you remember in faith that, 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 that Paul comes and he corrects the saints at, at Corinth. Why? Because this is so important. He corrects them because of what happened in the Old Testament and what's happening in the New Testament and the unworthiness and the, and, and the manner in which they're approaching. It's idolatry, he says, and it's not good for your soul and it's not good for your body. Thus, he corrects them. In verse 24, he says, do it in remembrance of me. In verse uh, 26, he says that not only is it a remembrance, it's a proclamation. That it's evangelistic. That it proclaims the Lord's death till He comes. Without words. Yet visibly, as we take the Lord's table, people come in and they see it and, and we proclaim the gospel to them. As we say to one another, believe on Christ today. He broke His body for you. The wrath of God was poured out on him as His blood dripped upon the soil beneath His feet. That this body was for you. That this blood was for you. Be encouraged. Be edified. Be built up. Be convicted if that's what, if that's what needs to happen. But may it not fall on, on fallow soil today or hardened soil today as if the blood of Christ was ineffectual for any man. And may not the bread and the cup and the preaching of the Word and, 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 and the right to baptism and the fellowship of the saints and prayer, may it not as well um, end up on the pulpit and no further. Or end up in the front of your pew and no further. May it go to the depths of our souls as the Gospel is preached through the Lord's table. And not only that, He corrects them to teach them that it's communion, not only with Christ, but with one another. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will answer, I will come in and sup with him. I'll eat with him. Sent to a church. Maybe He meant that He would come to him at the Lord's Supper. 
I don't know. But it speaks of fellowship. He says to a church that if you, I'm knocking and if you'll, you'll come, then, then I'll sup with you, I'll eat with you, I'll fellowship with you. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 26, um, Jesus says, this is the last time I'm going to eat with, that, with you until I eat this stuff until I, I, get to, until I see you in heaven and that, 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 that in the ages to come. There's coming a great fellowship, not only with Christ, but with the saints, as we gather around and finally culminate all of human history. But that's what we're going towards. That's what we're going towards. But it's communion one with another. I give you bread. You take the bread. But it's not me giving you the bread. It's Christ. And through the imagery, He he feeds the soul, teaching you to believe on Him to partake of His body, partake of His blood, to, to by faith come to Him, consume Him, be one with Him as He is one with you. Thus evangelizing to the lost because you have unity with Him and then also unity with the believers. With the believers, other believers. It's only believers. There's a warning against that. There's a warning against not being a believer or, or, or taking it unworthily. Let me just say this. that there, One of the unworthy ways that you take it is actually um, uh, as a church, as a body, as we commune with one another, is uh, in division. And that's what he says um, in the previous portion of the Scripture. He talks about them being factioned and being divided and coming together and taking the Lord's Supper um, as, as believers, yet divided. He says that's an unworthy way to do it. If there's a, a warning against the partaking of the table in the midst of unmitigated divisions and factions in the church. Why? First Corinthians, because we are one body, First Corinthians 10 says. First Corinthians 12 goes on to, to teach how practically we are one body. Jesus Christ prays in John chapter 17 in that great high priestly prayer that we would be one with one another as the Father and the Son or even one. Thus... To take the table while there are divisions among us together is actually to to spurn the very intentions of the gospel itself. It is to make the Lord's table hypocritical. God disdains that kind of worship. Thus He warns against that kind of worship. And Paul tells them that they come together not for the better but for the worse when they do that. That if that's the case, he says, it would have been better if you just stayed home. You're coming together and there's factions and divisions among you all throughout the the epistle. And that's part of the reason you're taking unworthily. You come together to proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. You come together to proclaim the gospel and the gospel is present in your unity. Thus, be unified. So there's a necessity for us um, within the church to take the Lord's table in a good, in a worthy manner. And part of that worthiness is found in the unity among brethren as we consecrate ourselves to the lord we covenant and consecrate ourselves um, together not only that there's devotion there's a drama displayed here every time you take and you eat and that drama is played out in front of you and in front of me but it's also a drama of theology first corinthians 10 says you can't eat and drink at this table and then go eat and drink at the table of idols What the table does is it demands total allegiance to Christ. There's no split decision. There's no, I'm serving the world today and then I'm going to serve Christ tomorrow. Or I'm going to serve Christ today and then I'm going to serve Him tomorrow. It's not, you can't worship is what he says. You can't worship God and demons at the same time. That when we approach the table, Lord, and if we did it weekly, can you imagine what that would do for the soul? To know that every single week I come together 
Or every single month I come together if we do it monthly that, that I'm going to approach the table and it demands allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. It demands unity among the body. Can you imagine what that would do for our souls and what that would do for the body? So that we would not... Because, because we need to commune with the Lord. Do you understand that? That this is what we're talking about. That our communion with Christ is on the line. That our communion with Christ is what's up for grabs here. Thus, we examine ourselves and we make things right and we run to one another because we want to run to Christ. We don't spurn um, disunity and we don't spurn as a little thing because we know that if we come in factions and we know that if we come with allegiance to the world that, that when we come, we won't commune with Christ. That we need Him and that we need that grace. Thus, we, we gather together by faith for that reason. It mandates a being in a right standing with fellow Christians. They devoted themselves to fellowship by the breaking of bread and prayers. We commune with Christ at the Lord's table. Thus, we need to come ready to receive it. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you know, we're taking the Lord's table today and if you're out of fellowship, then you just wait till next week. That's not what that means. If that's what you think it means, then I don't think you, it means what you think it means. I mean, we don't have this attitude like, I'm going to set aside the Lord's table today and that's going to give me a month to make it right. You know? If that's your idea and attitude towards fellowship, then it's all wrong. The idea should be that, that this is one of the ways that Christ communes with me and I commune with Him and we have fellowship. And whenever there's fellowship and disunity within the body or there's, there's idolatry in my heart, I, I'm just going to put it off today because I don't want the Lord to kill me you know, kind of deal and it'll give me a month to take care of things. No. No. What you do is you run to them and you run to Christ and you settle your heart. Why? Because you need more grace. And left alone for another month, who knows where you'll be? Left alone for another month, who knows how much damage you'll do in your home and how much damage you'll do in your career and how much uh, more apart from Christ you'll be. If you don't get it, there's a call today to make things right with one another and to make things right with God. Why? Because you need more grace. And that's why over the past month or two months or six months, you sat under the preaching of God's Word or you've read your Bible and it's like you, you, just, you just can't get a word from heaven. You know? It's like you're talking to yourself in your prayers. And you get up and wonder, why in the world did I do that at all? You know, I think that that's part of why they're sick in 1 Corinthians 11. Because a believer who has unsettled sin and disunity, man, he stresses out. He knows he's wrong and it takes a, body, it takes a toll on the body. David said in the Psalms, my, because of his sin, his, his bones waxed old. You know, that a believer that's out of a right standing with God and out of a right standing with the church um, can't commune with him. Thus, we're encouraged today to make things right before God and before man. Why? Because we need more grace. Imagine for a moment if I told you, or, you know, that. Or if, if God told you that you couldn't eat until you made things right, what do you think would happen? You'd fix it really fast. I do that with my kids sometimes. You had a job to do, son. If you don't, if you don't do it, that's fine. You just don't eat. You know? You, you just do it without supper. You know what it does? They do it really fast. Um, they do it because they want dessert. They do it because they know it's sustenance. They do it because they know that, that, that there's this thing that they need for life. You know, and there's this thing that they enjoy. 
You know what Christians should do? They know that they enjoy the presence of Christ so much and they need Him every single day, every hour. And they need the preaching of God's Word and they need the Lord's table and they need uh, the the fellowship and they need unity because they need Christ. Therefore, they, they make things right. There was a time in church history when the church would perform church discipline. And you know what they would do? Part of it was that they told them they couldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. Many took it so seriously that it would cause them to eagerly and contritely repent. Why? Because they saw it as a means of grace. The notion of them not being part of the body and not being in the presence of Christ and and, and feeling apart from Him um, was enough to terrify them. They felt so alone. The notion of them being apart from Christ and His body terrified them such that it, it provoked them to make things right. But in churches today... You know, everybody can come. They can take. There's no form of church discipline. There's no fencing of the table. um, So they can have their cake and eat it too, or so they think. But the church at one time took it so seriously. Why? Because the church understood your need of Christ and our need of Christ. Because they needed to consume Him by faith. They needed to partake in the communion of Christ and His body. They needed to celebrate what He had done on their behalf and what He continues to do and what He will finally do. Thus they proclaimed His death until He comes. Until He comes. That the Lord's table has implications of not only past and not only present, but also future. That it's part of God's preservation technique to give us hope until that final day. Thus, there's a warning to the profane and the insincere. Don't take the table until you make things right. But at the same time, I think that I've done this in this church, and I'm sorry, please forgive me. You know, as I've come to, uh, I think, a greater knowledge of Christ and just a reverence for Him, um, sometimes I, I present the table as if it's some extremely sober and reverent. It just makes people afraid to take, and I'm sorry. It is not to be that. And maybe after I preach that and I go through all that, you think, man, I don't know if I should take today. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy because of this. I'm not worthy because I sped this week or I ran a stop sign. I'm not worthy this week because I, I, uh, you know, I, I lost it with my wife or, man, I really lost it with my children. I'm not worthy this week. And, and you know what that does is like, that's, not the, that's not the worry. The worry is, is that you thought you were right last week or last month. You know, There is an unworthy way to take it, as we've already talked about, but nobody is perfectly worthy. When we take the Lord's table, we come to Him saying, we're not. We're not worthy. There's nothing good in us. We're just clinging to Christ, needing more grace. So, so some people think that they're super spiritual by waiting. you know. And, and I appreciate people who wait because they need to get things right or they are unworthy. So they don't heap up judgment upon themselves. But I see people doing that for months. I see people doing that for over a year. You know, who just never make things right. And never partake of the Lord's table. You know, don't you need that grace? Don't you need Christ? Don't you need to consume Him? That it's not, He's not arguing for utter perfection. He's arguing for a good standing with Christ and with the body. He's arguing for a repentant heart is coming to Him by faith, recognizing that you are unworthy. And that's, that's part of how we stay in good standing with the Lord. Because we partake regularly of the Lord's table, because we sit regularly under the preaching of God's Word, because we're regularly in His presence and He's active, giving us gifts that we do not deserve. So, I, I, I bet, so, so, so there is a difference. 
between two people at the table. And it's not that one is a sinner and one is not. It's that one acknowledges his sin, repents of it, and trusts in Christ for salvation. And the other one thinks he's just fine. With all of his sin, with all of his disunity, and he abuses the table. Don't approach it that way. After all, he thinks it's just a little bread. It's just a little wine. It's just a little juice. It's just a symbol. Paul warns those at Corinth to understand that it's more than just bread and it's more than just wine and it's more than just a, a sacrifice. You know? Just like the pagan idolatry. It's more than that. It's ruining your soul. And so is this. It's more than that and it's benefiting your soul when you take it rightly. You take it repentant, penitently. You take it searching after Christ. You take it believing in Him. So please, come sober. But not afraid to take the bread and the cup. Come reverent, but not trembling in fear. Come rejoicing, but not smug in your attitude. Come humble, but not beaten down and trodden over by men. Come, come. As one hymn says, which I had never heard before this week, but maybe we should. Your supper, Lord, before us spread. The cup beside us broken bread. Reminds us of your life laid down, the shameful cross, the thorny crown. Within our hearts, new life to give. Now may the worship we know here remind us you're always near. Help us to live our lives each day. In love and faith, O Lord, we pray. That the Lord's table is a, is a memorial, but it's more than that. It's more than just a memory. It is in some sense the spiritual presence of Christ ministering to us today as He does through various other means. Thus it should encourage us to make things right in the body and in our family and make things right with God because we need Him. Not only is it past and present, but it's future. And it pushes us on to take. It pushes us on until that final day when we'll sit down with Him and we'll finally fully fellowship and sup with Him on that great and glorious day. And we will be like Him and have full communion with Him. So I beg you today that if, you're, if there's something you need to get right, get it right. Get it right with one another. Take this time to do that. We'll have a couple of stanzas so that you can spend time in prayer and think on God. And then lift your head after communion is made and administered and rejoice. It's a glorious thing. It's beautiful. It should cause our hearts to give thanks. It's the Eucharist. It's the Lord's table. It's His. And He gives it to us when we don't deserve it. Thus rejoice as you receive it by faith. And thus Christ meets with you there. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. God, we thank You for the supper. We thank You for the bread and the cup and what they uh, mean to us and mean for us. There's no inherent physical, tangible presence of Christ. He's not being crucified once again. His crucifixion and sacrifice was once for all and sufficient for all. Thus, we partake of it in our Christian lives week after week and day after day as we remember it. And you take that memory, you take that thing, you take that that activity of Christ 
And you bring it to our souls afresh and anew over and over and over again, revealing to us something great and something grand and something glorious about the nature of Christ that we did not know before. We feel His presence. In some sense, we touch Him spiritually. We're there. He's there. It's holy. It makes us humble. It brings us reverence. Because we know what it's like to be in the presence of Christ, but at the same time we rejoice because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf that we could even be and come boldly to the throne room of grace. So God, as we give this time to You now, would You please, Lord, bless it. God, as we take just a few moments to take the bread and the cup, Father, would You just make us more like Your Son as You preach another sermon to us through this visible means of grace. We've sat under Your preaching, Father, and we have been... I pray, I pray we have been fed. Father, and if I did something I was dishonoring to You, would You wipe it, Father, from their memories and would You convict me, Father, of that, that I may repent? But if not, Father, I pray we've been faithful to You and that You'll use this, Father, as a means to make us more like Your Son and that You'll take it, Father, to eternal places and accomplish mighty works, Father, in us and through us for your honor and your glory, Father, as we eat and drink the gospel in some spiritual sense. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.